0: If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 11. We are in verses 11 to 16. I want to thank Trey for his sermon last week. It was a, it's a blessing to hear him go through uh, Philippians uh, just with such uh, detail and careful analysis of the text and uh, applying it to our hearts. We just praise God for him and praise God for the Apostle Paul who wrote that wonderful little punch to the heart called Philippians. Paul begins... Romans 11 with a question. Has God rejected his chosen people Israel? That's how he starts out in this chapter. As I've said before, we are in a three-chapter section of Romans. So Romans 9 through 11 is a distinct unit. But this portion of Paul's argument, he begins with a question. And that tells us that in Paul's mind, as he is addressing his readers, and as he's thinking about objections and some of the things that people might say to his gospel message, in his mind, the trustworthiness of God is at stake. Not for Paul. He trusts God. But he wants to be clear that we can trust God, that we should trust God. We have a moral obligation to trust God. He is trustworthy. Worthy. But as Paul enters Romans 11, God's steadfast love and faithfulness, his trustworthiness is at stake. Can we trust God to follow through on his promises? And so as I've said many times before, going through Romans 9 through 11 is not just a, an academic study of how to put the Bible together together and how the covenants in the Bible fit, and what it means to be the people of God, and so forth. It's not that, it's, well, let me say it's not merely that, although I think that is uh, quite a fruitful study in terms of understanding. But it, and it is also not merely just a fun dive into some of the basics for eschatology, because what we find in Romans 9 through 11 should inform our understanding of what's going to happen at the end of time, the end times, or our eschatology. So uh, that also is a part of the importance of Romans 9 through 11. But even more fundamental to us as Christians, So if you're thinking, well, I'm just, I'll be glad when we get to that very practical Romans 12, where we just get those lists of do's and don'ts. That'll be easy and practical. I'll put those in my pocket and go out into my week with my sticky and all that and, and do those things. Uh, if you're thinking that way, let me just encourage you to think more in these terms. And that is that Romans 9 through 11 gives us such a strong foundation for our trust in the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. The God of Israel is the one true God. He's the God whom we Worship and an understanding of Romans 9 through 11 helps us trust him because it shines forth his trustworthiness. So, Paul's answer to that question, has God rejected his people, is by no means the strongest, emphatic negative that you can get. By no means. And then Paul supports this strong, boisterous no by pointing to this thing called the remnant. Uh, You might have heard that in everyday life, but probably not. That's not a colloquial term. That's not something that we use just in daily life very often. When was the last time on the phone or in a text or on a TV show you heard the word remnant? It's probably been a while, so it might just fly right over your head. But this is Paul's Initial response to this question, has God rejected his people? He says, no, and actually absolutely not, by no means, God forbid, in the old King James Version. And then he points to this idea of the remnant. In Israel's present situation, Paul sees two categories. Present situation to Paul, but also present to us. We're still in the same period of time that Paul was in with regard to these truths, with regard to God's dealings with Israel. Two categories. On the one hand, there is the remnant, a small portion of Israel that is chosen by God, believing in Christ and experiencing life in the Holy Spirit. There is a portion of Israel for whom that is happening, for whom that is... True, And as an example, Paul gives himself. He himself is a descendant of Abraham. He is a member of the tribe of Benjamin through Jacob. He's an Israelite, and he has been reborn in Christ. He has trusted Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ has covered him, and the Holy Spirit of God has infused his life with power over sin, and sealed him for future day of redemption, the resurrection from the dead. Paul is experiencing these realities and he is not alone. There are many, relatively speaking, many other Jews, thousands of Jews who are experiencing this as well. So that's the remnant. Then, on the other hand, there is the rest of Israel. The remainder, hardened by God, yes, hardened by God. Of course they harden themselves just like Pharaoh. And at the same time, hardened by God. God has given them a spirit of stupor. God has given them eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. So Israel has not been rejected by God. That's Paul's first answer as he enters into Romans 11. Why is that true? Why is it true that God has not rejected his people? And the answer Paul gives is God has preserved this remnant. The unbelief of Israel, their rejection of Christ, is only partial. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. So there is a partial hardening. Hardening, And then there is a partial choosing. Some are elect, the rest are hardened. But the remnant is small. And relatively speaking, the remnant is even tiny when compared to the nation as a whole. Most of Israel, Israel collectively, Israel corporately, has fallen into unbelief. They have fallen into works righteousness and outright rejection of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. We can't forget this. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Israel has rejected God for thousands of years up to that point, but here... In Christ, they have quite literally, physically rejected God and even put Him to death. Rejecting the Jewish Messiah. Rejecting the God of Israel enfleshed. So it appears that this people... This nation as a whole, apart from this very small remnant, has been forever lost, has been ruined. Okay, yes, Paul, God has not rejected his people, and your answer to that is that he's preserved a remnant. But hold on a second. You're telling me that that's it. There's this small little group of Israelites who are believing. who who know God, and the rest are forever lost. The rest are ruined. Is that what is going on? Well, that's where we pick up today in verses 11 through 16. So chapter 11, verses 11 to 16. The title for the sermon this morning is Israel Not Ruined. Here in verse 11, Paul turns to a different Question. We've seen that first question. Now he asks a different question. Here's what he says So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And this word fall could also be understood as destroyed. Did they stumble in order that they might be destroyed? Did they stumble in order that they might be completely ruined? What has happened to Israel corporately, is it final? Is it final? Is Israel irreparably damaged? Is Israel lost in ruins? Israel, corporately understood, has stumbled. They stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over the gospel. All but a small remnant has tripped and failed to obtain salvation. But what Paul says from this point forward in Romans 11 is that this is not the end of the story. And it begins here as he says, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. By no means is what has happened to Israel final. By no means has Israel been eternally set aside, forever lost, left in ruins, apart from this little remnant. So that's what Paul deals with in these verses. So if you would go and stand with me as we read God's word together. Now we are going to read verses 1 to 16. Because I want you to see what Paul's been saying up to this point. But our text for today will be 11 to 16. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That was our passage for last week. Now we come to today's text. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the the branches. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord, ask for his help for for clear preaching and attentive listening and that through that he would work in all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are desperately needy this morning as we come before you as a corporate local church. Lord, we Are so thankful that you've brought us here. We're so thankful that we have your word. Lord, what would we, why would we want to spend this time doing anything other than digging into your word? Lord, we thank you that you have provided it. We want to hear you speak this morning, Father, as your word is put before us, as your word is explained. God, we pray that we, insofar as that is the case, That we would hear you, your voice. God, we thank you that you love us enough to give us your word. And we thank you now that we get to gather together, not just alone in our car listening to a podcast or something, Lord. But together we get to be here to sit under the scriptures, to sing your praises, to pray together corporately, to raise our hearts to you in one accord. God, we're so grateful. I pray for any among us this morning who are unsaved. Lord, would you convert them today? God, I pray for any among us this morning who have been attending for a long time and uh, considering whether or not to join. Lord, would you bring them to a firm resolve? Would you bring them to uh, a desire to join with your people, to be united in uh, concrete, formal ways with a local body of believers, whether here or elsewhere, Lord, that, that you would help them to settle. And Lord, for all of us here this morning, we pray that we wouldn't leave here unchanged, but that, God, you would do your work among us. We thank you for Noah. We thank you for your grace in his life and for the, the picture of the gospel that we got to see this morning. We praise you we know that the angels in heaven are singing your praises and we praise you for what you have done in each of our hearts and, and what you have done in this man's heart as well god go with us now we ask in jesus name amen so if israel's stumbling is not for falling it's not in order that that they might fall that's purpose language if the stumbling is not for the purpose that they would fall, then what is it for? Why has Israel stumbled? What's God's purpose behind it? Paul provides two sets of answers in these verses. Two sets of answers. So first he gives the immediate purpose, and then he gives the ultimate purpose. So first... This stumbling is for saving and provoking. And you'll see these up here on the screen. You can write them down. The immediate purpose, haven't written that part uh, up here, but the immediate purpose for saving and provoking. And then the ultimate purpose for restoring and blessing. So we're going to spend time looking at each of those. So first, for saving and provoking. And I do want to bring you back to the words of the text. So look with me at verse 11 And then verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read verse 12, but I want you to really hone in on these verses, verse 11 and verses 13 to 14. We're going to come back to verse 12 in a little bit when we come to our next point. Beginning in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And we'll come back to that verse in a bit. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. Saving and provoking. One of the things we know about God Is that he is a God of purpose. He's a God of purpose, a God of intentionality. God works in an orderly way towards a definite end. And it it, it really amazes me that we get this at the very beginning of the Bible. This is the first way that God introduces himself. Do you not think that's, that's important? When we come to ask the question, who is this God? And we tried to do that when we went through Genesis. We tried to just sort of start with the text as the Bible opens for us, who is this God? And it begins by giving us God's creation. And what we find in Genesis 1 is this very orderly process by which God creates, forms, prepares the heavens and the earth. We see it very, very orderly. And then we see it ending in a very definite goal. God is preparing the world to create man and woman. He is creating the world, and preparing the world, forming the world for the creation of his image bearers, Adam and Eve. Humanity. And then we see, we get to the very end of chapter one, and what do we read? Very good. So God is working from, it's formless, and it's void, and he takes what he has made, and he forms it, and he's Day by day, he declares what he has made to be good, and to be good, and to be good. And then by the time you get to the end of it, you get that extra little word, very, very good. An orderly process with a definite end. And I just want to make this little implication for us quickly. Uh, It's not the point of what we're looking at today, but I do want to make this implication. This tells us a little bit about what it looks like to be human. Because we're, we get this picture of God and then human beings are created in his image. Well, at that point in the text, the only thing you have to go off of is what you've just read. And that tells us that, that orderliness and intentionality and purposefulness is part of what it means to flourish as a human being. So just a side note, this should help us, it guides us in, in human flourishing, where there is order and purpose. But this orderliness, this intentionality, this purposefulness was not only true at creation. It's not as though God just flicked the switch on there and then he turned off the switch afterwards. It has been true throughout all of history, all of human history. And that is why we speak of something called redemptive history. You've heard me say that a lot, and it is kind of a church term. And so I apologize if that's just going pew right over your head. Uh, sometimes we use these church terms and we're not as good as we ought to be at defining them, saying what exactly we mean. But if you, if you haven't heard these ideas, basically it just means uh, redemptive history simply has to do with what God has done redemptively in redeeming people, in saving people, in rescuing people, buying them back from slavery, from sin, all throughout human history. Since the fall... God has been carrying out his redeeming purposes on the stage of human history. And early on, those purposes, which were very orderly, and those purposes which have been toward particular ends, those purposes involve choosing and setting apart a distinct people. This is a massive part of the history of redemption. God choosing setting his affections on, sanctifying, that is setting apart a specific people, a nation, Israel. The descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Not not merely the descendants of Abraham, not merely the descendants of Isaac, but specifically, particularly the descendants of Abraham Through his son Isaac, the child of promise, and through his son Jacob. The older will serve the younger. Jacob was the chosen one through whom God would establish this people. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so if you're trying to figure out how all this fits together, Jacob is Israel. And so we talk about Israel, we're talking about the descendants of Jacob through the 12 sons of Israel. They are the Israelites. They come from Jacob, from Isaac, and from Abraham. Listen to what Paul says about this people. I've read this before, but listen closely again. Romans 9, 4 to 5, they are Israelites Or I should say, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Any one of those would be enough. Any one of those items in that list is immeasurably beautiful and gracious. But all of them together, that's what God did for Israel. To them belong. The patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. All these blessings, the establishment of this people through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the coming of Christ through this people. God's redemptive purposes involve choosing a people and then bringing blessing to the whole world through that people, so Genesis 12:3 in you speaking to Abraham God says in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that leads us to the question of Israel's stumbling. If God is a purposeful God as I think is clear, then what are his purposes in hardening Israel? We certainly can't say that God is just out of control here, that that history is just spun out of control. God is purposeful. He is working. So what are his purposes in hardening Israel? What are his purposes behind the stumbling of his people? Two immediate purposes that we get here, and we'll look at the ultimate ones in a moment, but they are saving the nations and provoking the Jews. So look at verse 11 again verse 11 says so i ask did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the gentiles so as to make israel jealous so let's look at each of these first saving the nations paul has already given us a description of the nations the gentiles at the end of romans 1 he gives us a pretty ugly portrayal of the Gentiles. It is, it is not a pretty picture. While Israel had all the things we just read about, think about this, while Israel had all the things we just read about in chapter nine, verses four to five, that, that pancake stack, that massive stack of divine blessings, that massive stack of God's goodness expressed to them, his covenant people, his chosen people while that is going on in Israel the nations are lost in idolatry and depravity i won't reread the end of romans 1 but that is a picture of the gentile world utter depravity and we get this sort of thing in ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 12 where paul is writing to a largely gentile audience and he says this remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And then this last one is the most stinging, I think, at least in terms of the, uh, what, what all it entails. Having no hope, and without God in the world. Let me say that again. The state of the nations before Christ came on the scene, before the apostolic ministry of Paul and others in founding churches around the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the situation for the Gentile world, that's, that's the whole world apart from the Jews, Was this, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. Then... In salvation history, in redemptive history, God does something amazing and utterly unexpected. The Jews did not, did not expect God to do this. If they had been reading their scriptures, if they had read Moses, as Jesus said, if you, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me. If they had rightly read Moses, they would have understood these things, at least partially. Even the disciples were in the dark until Jesus illuminated their minds, but they would have understood that this was always foretold in the Scriptures. But God does something amazing and unexpected. He closes the door on Israel. This people we just described in Romans 9 who have all these blessings, he closes the door on Israel apart from a tiny little crack. Apart from a tiny little crack, he closes the door. And he slings open the door to the Gentiles. Slings it open. It just flies off the hinges. Wide open for these nations who had no hope and without God in the world. As Paul says in verse 13, he, part of the Jewish remnant, is an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's very existence is consumed with getting this saving, hopeful gospel to the Gentile peoples. That's, Paul is the tip of the spear in God's workings in redemptive history to bring this explosion about on planet Earth. And that is the breaking in of the kingdom of God to people from the east and the west who will come down, come and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Jesus says in Matthew 8, to the whole world. Paul is the very tip of the spear in this great movement in redemptive history. Christ has come. He has died and risen and now through the ministry of the apostles and Paul in particular, the Gentiles are being saved. And that's why after those words I just read a moment ago, without hope, without God in the world, the very next verse, Paul writes this in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has come. The veil of the temple has been torn and the gospel of the Christ who is the hope of the nations has gone out to the world. And by his blood, they are being saved. Let me just say this to us. This is very distant for us in the 21st century. But as Gentiles, I presume largely most of us in the congregation here are Gentiles, not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though we may have uh, some who uh, among us are Jewish or, or ethnically Jewish or some among us who are partially Jewish, but largely we are Gentile believers. Now, I know it's 2,000 years ago since Paul wrote this, but if you could, if you could bring yourself back there because we need to We are part of this category that Paul is referring to. As Gentiles, our salvation today in the 21st century must be traced back to God's purpose of closing the door on Israel in order to open it wide for us. We are part of a train of people that have been flowing through this open door because of what God did in history then, the time of the apostles. This is what Jesus describes in Matthew twenty-one forty-three. He says to the Jews, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says in Acts 28, 28, which Trey read earlier, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Why will they listen? Because God has opened their hearts. Why are the Jews not listening? Because God has hardened their hearts. He has given them ears that do not hear. And this purpose is underway. So let me step back for a moment and say this. This purpose that I'm talking about, this purpose of saving the nations, this purpose of bringing the gospel to the hopeless and filling the hearts of the nations with hope, this purpose is underway until at some point in the future the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Let me say this, folks, as a way of humbling us. This has an expiration date. This going out of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, in which people like us and our pagan ancestors came to bow to Christ rather than to idols, this has an expiration date. God will at some point in redemptive history shut that door. The fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. So that's the first immediate purpose, the saving of the nations. The second immediate purpose is the provoking of the Jews. This may be something that you really haven't given much thought to, this really is I think quite humbling for us as gentiles. And here it is. Why is God saving you? It's amazing when we think about it. Why is God saving us? Why are we gentiles being saved? What's God's purpose in saving us? Well, obviously there are lots of reasons that we can give for that. Lots of ways we can answer that question. And of course, it is ultimately for the eternal praise of God's glorious grace. And yes, for our good in Jesus Christ eternally as we are conformed into his perfect image for our eternal bliss unto the praise of his glorious grace. Yes, let's put all that there. That is true. But on one level, our salvation as Gentiles in human history, has a purpose beyond itself. Let me say that again. Your salvation, our salvation collectively as Gentile, this is humbling, has a purpose beyond itself. It is not the end in God's plan in redemptive history. Let me say it this way. God is saving us To make them jealous. Wow. God is saving us Gentiles in order to, in history, in space and time, provoke Israel. To provoke Israel. To provoke Israelites. Verse 11, it says, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. To provoke Israel to jealousy. That's what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Yes. He's saving us. But he's saving us for that purpose. Let me say this to us. This humbles us. And it shatters any kind of anti-Semitism. Isn't it amazing? Reading this. Isn't it so Count, it's so counter to one another. It is absolutely irrational to read this and then be anti-Semitic. To read this and then go out and mistreat or arrogantly hate or disdain or show contempt for the Jewish people, wherever they may be found in whatever century. And yet this has largely been the practice throughout Christian history. Early in the church, in the medieval church, in the church after the Reformation. For centuries, Christians have arrogantly mistreated the Jewish people. And I think largely because of a lack of understanding of passages like this. And so, what is the remedy for anti Semitism? It's God's truth. The remedy for anti-Semitism is this truth we find in Romans 9 through 11 and other places in God's word. God's truth is needed to abolish this form of racism. Let me say this. What is the remedy for racism today? Is it some world-based theory? Is it critical race theory? Is that the means by which racial healing takes place? No. The way that racial healing takes place, the way that people's individual hearts are transformed so that racism dies is by God's truth. It is by understanding what we find in God's word. The more and more that a Christian comes to be submitted to God's truth, the more and more things like racism will die in the human heart because that's where that exists. It exists in the human heart. Whatever we are to make of societal issues, whatever we are to say about infrastructural and systemic issues in our society, politically and socially, the one thing we know to be true is that this sort of sin is found in the human heart. And just as God's truth obliterates the form of racism called anti-Semitism, so too does God's sufficient truth obliterate in the heart of a sinner the wickedness of all forms of racism. Whatever the society, whatever the time in history, whatever the individual circumstances. Paul even says in verses 13 to 14, that he makes much of his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. He magnifies this ministry to the Gentiles. He devotes himself zealously to this work. Why? You might think, well, because he he wants to see God glorified in the salvation of the Gentiles, period. Well, of course that's true. Uh, Paul is absolutely exuberant about the fact that individual pagans are turning from idols to trust in Jesus Christ, the King. Paul is absolutely over the top about that, but notice the logic of verses 13 to 14. Why does he magnify his ministry? Why does he celebrate so much his ministry to the Gentiles? Because he has another goal in mind. Verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. Let me say it this way. Every conversion of a Gentile. I bet you've never thought about it like this before. Every conversion of a Gentile, from place to place around the Mediterranean world where Paul goes, every conversion of a Gentile is a little glimmer of hope for his own people. That's in the back of Paul's mind. It's in the front of Paul's mind. It's all over Paul's mind. Yes, apostle to the Gentiles. But a great part of his desire is that through that, his people would be provoked to jealousy. And we see this, for example, in Acts 13, verses 44 to 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Everywhere the gospel went, and these pagans, these disgusting, filthy Gentiles, were coming to call the God of Abraham their God. The Jews are sitting back with their arms crossed, and their fists waving, with hearts dripping with jealousy. God desired to give his blessings to the Gentiles so that the Jews would look upon that and see what it was they had rejected. So that's the immediate twofold purpose, saving the Gentiles and provoking the Jews. But now we come to the ultimate purpose. And that's our second point for restoring and blessing. So look at verses 12 and 15 to 16. Verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then in verses 15 to 16, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So we've seen the Immediate purposes that God had in his people stumbling. And now we come to these ultimate purposes. What is God doing? Two ultimate objectives. Number one, restoring of Israel as a whole. The restoring of Israel as a people, as a whole. And number two, worldwide blessing. So let me look at each of these. First, restoring. Notice how Paul tells the readers what is going to happen in the future. For now, in the present, there is trespass, verse 12, and failure, rejection, verses 12 and 15. That's what's going on in the present. Trespass, failure, rejection. But in the future, this will be reversed. There will be, as Paul says here, Full inclusion, verse 12, and acceptance, verse 15. Do you see that? Do you see that present versus future? Do you see how that is being set up? This is the current situation of Israel. And Paul is saying, but this is going to be the future situation with Israel. Full inclusion and acceptance. Now we'll talk more about this later in chapter 11. But here Paul envisions a time in redemptive history when there will no longer be a mere remnant. Now is the remnant time, folks. Now is the remnant time. This is is not the perpetual state of things. We are now in a period where Israel is defined by this remnant, salvifically. Instead, in the future, there will be a restoration of the whole. Israel collectively, Israel corporately will be brought in, will be brought into Christ, will be, as Paul says in verse 15, accepted to the degree to which they have been rejected now, corporately, the degree to which they have, been, uh, they have not accepted Christ, the degree to which they are immersed in trespass, they failed to that degree corporately, collectively, they will be accepted. Verse 15. And Paul gives the reason for this in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Here Paul uses two metaphors. One from the sacrificial system. Numbers 15, verses 17 to 21, and one from agriculture. And the two metaphors are meant to show what Paul says explicitly later in verse 28. So go, go ahead to verse 28. He is saying in these, in these metaphors, in verse 16, what he will say later in verse 28. He says that as regards the gospel, this mass of Israel, unbelieving, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The people as a whole are regarded as holy. The collective lump are regarded as holy. Devoted to the Lord... And beloved because of their forefathers, because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God can't toss Israel aside any more than he could toss aside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who can read through Genesis and see God tossing aside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. We read all those promises and all those confirmations and that covenant making and that covenant keeping and all the ways that God's providential hand is guiding them throughout till the end when Joseph says in chapter 50, what God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then we're immediately there in the picture with Moses and the Exodus as we go into Genesis, I mean into Exodus. God could never have tossed away Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what Paul is saying here is in the same way, to the same extent, will he not toss aside this whole corporate entity called Israel? There is an intricate link between the origin and the whole, between the root and the whole tree which we've been grafted into, by the way, and we'll see that in following weeks. As we finish up this morning, I want you to see the second ultimate purpose, and that is blessing. Paul says something in verse 12 that he basically repeats and expands upon in verse 15. He is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this lesser thing is true, then how much more this other thing? If God's dealings with Israel to bring them to stumbling results in spiritual blessings going out to the Gentiles, as it says in verse 12, or reconciliation with God, as we get in verse 15, then how much more good will come to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the world, when God restores Israel as a whole? All the good, here's what Paul's saying all the good that God's been doing for 2,000 years among the Gentiles on account of Israel's stumbling, on account of Israel's failure, on account of Israel's trespass, all the good on account of that that God has been doing for the last 2,000 years, if that is the case, whoa! Imagine how much good God is going to bring to the world when Israel is restored. When Israel is brought to a place of being fully included. Of being accepted. And Paul even states what he means in verse 15. Listen to this, this it's amazing. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. Wow. Whatever Paul is saying, whatever he's saying right there, he is at the very least saying that Israel's restoration is the catalyst for worldwide blessing and cosmic Renewal For something massive that is going to infuse itself with blessings and riches untold for the world. What's going to be the thing that brings that about? As Paul says here, it is the acceptance of Israel. The restoration of the people. If their sinning brought salvation... What will their restoring mean for us all? You know, there are lots of ways that this has been understood. Life from the dead. It has been understood to mean that uh, uh, since the early church, the early Greek fathers, that whatever we are to make of our eschatology, and obviously we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and that involves a lot of study across the Scriptures, but it seems that, it has seemed to some throughout history that there really is no way to understand this than to see that when God restores Israel, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and God restores Israel, that that event itself, whatever that event will entail, however long that event will take, that that event will precipitate the resurrection from the dead. That when Paul says here, life from the dead, it is quite literal that that event will precipitate the resurrection of people's bodies from the dead. Some understand this to precede, that this particular restoration of Israel precedes specifically what is described in Revelation 20 as a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Some understand this to be a spiritual renewal across the earth. I think that's the weakest explanation because we already have that. Uh, The text, the way Paul argues here, he says that there's the gospel going out. There's riches to the Gentiles and riches to the world. And if that's what has happened, then how much more will come at the full time? Inclusion. How much more will come at the acceptance? So it seems that he would be arguing for something more than just lots of the same. Lots of evangelization among the nations. Also remember, it is not until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in that all Israel will be saved. And so you can't have this, This, if you understand that, uh, I think the way that it's presented there in, in chapters uh, verses 24 to 26, you can't have this, this uh, mass evangelization of Gentiles after this event. That this event is itself the culmination of all other events. So whatever the details, wherever you fall on that, and that would take a lot of study. I tend to agree at this point with what Thomas Schreiner says, and many others since the early church, the physical resurrection of the dead and the climax of history are almost certainly in view. Now what that looks like on the ground and how all that plays out, there's a lot to that. But I do tend to understand these words, life from the dead, to mean the resurrection of the bodies of those who have fallen asleep to use Paul's language in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and the resurrection of the bodies as Daniel himself describes in chapter 12. What an amazing event that will be when Israel is restored, when Israel becomes corporately believing in its Christ. This humbles us as Gentile believers. I think it leads us to pray for the Jews that we know in our lives, for Jews all over the world, I think it leads us to pray that God would work uh, evangelistically and revivalistically in the state of Israel, that more and more would the Jews be provoked to jealousy and turn to their Christ. And we anticipate the day when the nation, the people will be restored and this cataclysmic culmination event life from the dead will come to us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the details of this passage. Lord, we thank you for hope. You fill our hearts with gospel hope. As we think about our own individual lives, we are filled with hope. Romans 8 reminds us of where we're headed individually, that we will We will be glorified, and no one can take us away from this, and no one can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus, this personal, existential hope that we each have in Jesus. But God, we also thank you for this this holistic, worldwide, cosmic hope that you present to us here in Romans 9 through 11, at the very end of Romans 11, as, as you show to us that the culmination of your purposes will be the restoration of your stumbling people, Israel, and that through that you will bring history to a close. God, we praise you for this hope as well. We pray that both of these things would be in our minds, our own hope of glory, but also the hope that is held out in redemptive history for all of humanity, for our world. We thank you, God, that these are the answers for our societies. These are the answers for our neighbors. These are the answers for our own hearts and our families. This is the only hope that anyone has is through Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for this time in his word. Lord, go with us as we Celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We pray that our hearts would be freshly kindled with faith and repentance. And we thank you that we get another picture of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.